Good day, my friends, and welcome to another moment. Yes, another Black History moment with Bo. And I hope this day finds your life flowing in the direction it is meant to go. And if you are a new listener, I say hello and welcome. And I guarantee you, if you stay around long enough, and if you listen long enough, you're going to enjoy what you hear. And you are going to learn a few things. Before we get started today, I would like to talk about a few things. First of all, the atrocity that jumped off. And that's exactly what it was, an atrocity. An atrocity that happens time and time again. Now whiteness is fearful that we are going to replace them. And they have a right to be. Because at one time in this world, there was only one race. And what goes around comes around. And we may not live to see it, but eventually there is going to be only one race on this planet. Like in the beginning. Now they can stop people of color from voting. They can stop them from coming into the country. But the inevitable can never be stopped. And as far as Buffalo is concerned, you and I both know what they're going to say. Oh, he was mental. Yes, he was mental that he originally planned the shooting for March. But that changed because there were not enough people in the store in March due to the well-known Buffalo weather. So he decided he could kill more people on a warm Saturday. But yet, he's mental. And he cased the store the day before the shooting. But yet, he's mental. He even wrote 180 pages about what he was going to do. But yet, he's mental. He's 18 years old and living with his parents. Where in the hell were they at? They should also be charged. If you're living in my house and you're 18 years old, whether you are in school or not, I am going to snoop. You have no privacy when you are living rent-free in my house and you are not bringing all of those weapons and ammunition into my house. I think the parents are the true mental case. And as far as whiteness is concerned, you can run and you can change laws and you can do whatever it is in your power to do. You cannot change fate. And don't make excuses for horrible people. You can't put a flower in an asshole and call it a vase. Now I'm gonna leave that alone. And all you people that haven't heard from me, I promise I am going to answer those emails. But right now I think it's time for us to slip into a little darkness and pull out some unknown facts about us and our struggles just to be. 
you know, I got the terminology slipping into darkness from a band back in the 70s that I just loved, a band by the name of War. And today I'm going to tell you how race records turned black music into big business. In 1926, a self-taught musician named Big Bill Bronzy found his way to Chicago. A sharecropper turned soldier, he had left Mississippi and headed north to escape the pervasive racism of the Jim Crow South, along with thousands of other African Americans in the Great Migration. Like many other black men, he worked as a janitor and a Pullman porter and a cook. But when he found himself in front of a microphone in a recording studio, the blues musician knew he had found his niche. Bronzer's recording were sold as race records, music for and by black audiences. But though he recorded hundreds of songs in just a decade, responding to a national hunger for black voices and black music, he barely made any money. Bronzy was just one of thousands of black recording artists who helped fuel the phenomena of race records between 1920 and 1940. But though these artists pioneered new sounds in blues, jazz, and gospel, most labored for no recognition and little pay. You see, at the time, America had segregated schools and buses. Black people had to watch movies and theatrical performances from hot, dirty balconies and were excluded from much of white culture, especially in the Jim Crow South. And even popular culture was segregated. Race media, music, films, and publications was created by and for African Americans, and white audiences seldom knew or cared about these creative art forms. A black person might own a shelf full of records by groundbreaking artists like Ma Rainey, Jelly Roll Morton, or Duke Ellington all of whom became best-selling artists on so-called race records. But a white person might have no idea who any of these artists were, though they sold thousands of copies. That's because race records were sold in stores and advertised in publications that catered to African Americans. And though they documented and celebrated some of the best black music of their day, from blues to vaudeville to jazz, race records didn't always benefit African Americans. At the turn of the 20th century, black Americans performed in all sorts of musical genres. Ragtime, vaudeville, all black orchestras, but discrimination and Income inequality meant that nearly no black artists were recorded. Recording equipment, still in its infancy, was bulky, expensive, and entirely owned by white people. And white people didn't listen to black music except for vaudeville songs that were sung by white people in blackface. And if you don't know what blackface is, 
we will get into that. There were a few early exceptions. George W. Johnson, the first black person ever recorded, who became known as the Whistling Coon for his ragtime whistling started in 1890, and vaudevillians George Walker and Burt Williams, who recorded a variety of songs at the turn of the 20th century. But for the most part, black people could only be found behind the scenes, writing many recorded hits but receiving little money, fame, or credit for their work. Then, in 1920, a black composer named Perry Bradford went to OK Records to try to convince them to record a black artist. At the time, the label had an entire division of foreign records in language like Norwegian and Yiddish. They were recorded for immigrant communities, and Bradford convinced the label to take a chance on recording a black singer for the line. Mamie Smith, a blues singer, recorded two songs which were released with marketing that downplayed her race. But when black audiences heard that they could buy a record of a black performer singing black music, they rushed to the stores, buying 75,000 copies of a record despite it costing the equivalent of two hours of work at an average black person's salary. Even then, we were trying to support our own. Smith recorded Crazy Blues, the first blues record. This time it sold 100,000 copies and other record labels hustled to get in on the trend. Suddenly, every label wanted to produce race records and black audiences who had been excluded from recorded music for so long wanted to buy them. Of course, whiteness was content to make money off of our abilities. But not all race labels were white-owned. Black Swan Records, for example, released about 150 race records, including recordings of black classical musicians. However, the label ran into financial trouble and was eventually swallowed up by Paramount, which was quickly becoming one of the most important race labels. Segregation and racism, combined with only fleeting access to capital, technology, and distribution, which were almost exclusively controlled by whites, placed the African-American labels at a disadvantage and ultimately contributed to their quick demise. Race records made sense for white record labels, which had been losing market share with the introduction of radio. But they made financial sense for another reason. It was easier to exploit and underpay black artists than white ones. Many of their songs had never been published, and labels snagged recording rights along with the recordings. Many artists were put on records that gave them synonyms or left out their names entirely, which meant they weren't able to parlay their recording careers 
into successful performing careers. Countless others were recorded without contracts and without being paid royalties. Since black artists were mostly excluded from ASCAP, the American Society of Composers, Artists, and Performers, the few who did have royalty agreements didn't have much chance of enforcing them. This led to shocking financial predicaments for artists like Bessie Smith, known as Empress of the Blues. Smith made Columbia millions of dollars, but she could not read and was never paid royalties. Starting in the mid-1920s, traveling scouts took recording equipment into the American South, where they profited off of one-time local recordings with artists whose names were not known and who never benefited from an ongoing relationship with the labels. Eventually, white audiences caught on to black music and race records were rebranded as rhythm and blues. Race records declined and died, but though the recordings captured artists like Bronzy, Ethel Waters, Bethley Smith, and Louis Armstrong, there's also a reminder of how white businessmen used black labor to line their pockets in a time of rampant discrimination. Until I started running in this music business, remembered Bronzy, I had never lived around no people that would kill their own brother like for a lousy dollar. There you have it, my friends. Race records. You had no idea that they were now rhythm and blues, or better yet known as R&B. They always take from us and never give to us. But this has been bred into whiteness since the beginning of time. And just like the shooting in Buffalo, your silence gives consent. And in today's society, our silence is not getting to the ballot box. The best way to kill a snake is to take off its head. And when we get to the place that we have people in office that look like us and are for us, then we are killing that snake. Well, my friends, that music tells me that it is once again time for me to leave you. But before I go, I want to leave you with this message. History matters. Full, complete, honest, real, factual, difficult, horrifying history matters. Until next time, y'all be good. And remember, it's been my honor.